Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. Uh, I'm a member here at WSBC, and it's my privilege today to preach to you from the Lord's Word. And we come in every Sunday, and we're excited to hear from the Lord's Word. We're excited to hear from the Bible. Uh, but we also come in at the same time from, from a tiring week that we may have had uh, stress at work, uh, that we may just see examples of the fall uh, everywhere that we look. If you even read the news, I'm sure you see lots of evidence in the headlines that the fall, our sin, is everywhere. And because of that, we have a lot of reasons to fear. We see wars and conflicts break out in Israel. We see that the COVID pandemic is not under control, that there's still cases in China, there's cases outside of China, they're increasing. We even see within China the persecution of, of Christians, of believers, that there have been crackdowns more and more on the local church, more and more on Christian schools. And we don't even know that maybe today during our service that we may be interrupted, we may have unexpected visitors come in with the intent to shut down the service. And so these news sources, uh, these headlines that we read, they know the power of fear. They use them to draw out our attention and they put the focus even more on the fear. And so to fight this, a lot of historical figures, a lot of leaders, they've tried to encourage people. They've tried to encourage people to be courageous, to deny fear, to, to, to press it down, to make us want to overcome it and be better people, to be stronger. We have nothing to fear except fear itself. These words are from President Franklin Roosevelt's who's the 32nd president of the U.S. from his inaugural speech in 1933. At this time in history, the U.S. was facing an economic depression. People were worried and fearful about their jobs, about having enough to eat, about their provision. President Nelson Mandela, who was elected as the first black head of state in South Africa, worked towards breaking down institutionalized racism. And he said this about fear. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. And even if we look in the fictional world, if we look at Star Wars, and like Star Wars, the, the, Jedi, the Jedi Master Yoda, he says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering, some of Star Wars fans that are here. And so we have a, we have a natural inclination to fear. We, we, we fear the unknown. And this can be exploited, especially by the devil, especially by evil. And so I want you to ask yourself, what are you fearful of? What are you fearful of? Maybe you're fearful of something reasonable. You're fearful of heights. You're fearful of the dark. You're fearful of, of snakes or spiders. Maybe you're fearful of public speaking and being in front of people. You might be fearful of persecution. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.2 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We can expect that to happen, but we may also fear it. We don't know when we'll be called by the Lord to face this, to carry this cross uh, of persecution. But we must be willing, we must have our hearts ready. Perhaps you have a fear of failure or of rejection. 
Maybe you're fearful about schoolwork. Maybe you're fearful about tests, upcoming exams. Maybe you're fearful at, at work you have a boss that is demanding and unreasonable, that wants projects instantly. Maybe you feel rejected by friends. You feel vulnerable and you feel let down by them. You may have a fear of uncertainty, of doubt, of change. Perhaps you want a new job and you're waiting and you're fearful it will never come. Perhaps you are waiting for a relationship, for the Lord to provide a spouse. You're waiting for the one to come and you're doubting. Perhaps you're fearful of a new baby, of being grandparents, of having hope for a baby, but struggling and not seeing the Lord's faithfulness. Or maybe you're having a, a big upcoming move. Many of our members are, are leaving this summer and relocating. There's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty when these changes come. Or maybe you just have FOMO, F-O-M-O. This is the fear of missing out. You feel like you look at your social media feed and you feel like everyone else is having a good time. And you feel like, I'm not, I'm not part of that. Why am I not part of that? You feel like everyone else is having fun at your expense. And so we look at fear today, but more importantly, we look at faith. We look how these two go hand in hand a lot more than we usually think. In today's passage, we will see reactions of fear. We'll see reactions that are full in faith when they're confronted with Jesus. And we can see how we can view that and apply that to our own lives now. And so if you've been coming to this church, you know, we've been preaching through Luke. And so as a church, we're, we're, we continue to study uh, and we get pointed back to the question that keeps popping up uh, in Luke's gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? This question is a common thread that we see. We saw this a few weeks ago in Luke 7. And so in chapter 7, we see that uh, there is a pair of salvation miracles there. We see that the centurion servant uh, was healed because of his faith. And then we also see the raising of the widow's son from the dead. And so today, as we look at chapter 8, we'll find another quartet, four miracles, calming of the storm, the deliverance of the demon-possessed man, the deliverance from disease, and the deliverance from death. And each of these miracles will tell us about the power and about the authority of Jesus. In between these sets of miracles, the way that Luke lays it out in uh, the end of 7 and the beginning of 8, we have some important lessons and teachings from Jesus. And we see that salvation is only by grace through faith alone in Jesus. So he performs these miracles, but he makes sure to hammer home the lesson, what he wants us to know. And the lesson specifically highlighted in the story in between all these miracles with the, uh, the sinful woman. That from that story, we can see right in the middle of all these miracles, that even though we see Jesus healing and raising people from the dead, the truly remarkable miracle that Jesus can perform is that he himself has the authority to forgive sins, to forgive everyone's sins. And so today we'll look at four more miracles again performed by Jesus, and we'll look specifically at the reaction of these people that witness these miracles. We see that fear will naturally occur in our hearts, and we observe the witness and uh, the witnesses that experience these miracles and see the focus of their fear of Jesus, while others will. Uh, react by realizing that Jesus is Lord and he is the one to be feared but also trusted. And so as we continue to, to see the answer play out of who is Jesus, today's main point and the summary 
uh, can, be, can be stated as the fear that comes when we realize that Jesus is all-powerful and he is Lord over all should result in us to place our complete faith in him. The fear that comes when we realize that Jesus is all-powerful and he is Lord over all should result in us to place our complete faith in him. The fear that comes when we realize that Jesus is all-powerful and he is Lord over all should result in us to place our complete faith in him. In him, sorry, in him. And so today as we examine the passage and we understand that Jesus is Lord over all, Specifically, we'll be looking at four main points. And my usual fashion is to have a alliteration. So they'll all start with the letter D. And so he has authority, or he is Lord, over disaster, over demons, over disease, and over death. So our four main points today. He is Lord. He has authority over disaster, over demons, over disease, and over death. So it's my prayer today as we understand the Lordship of Jesus and his authority, that we see that the fear of Jesus is to know that he is Lord and sovereign over all, but that he is also worthy of our complete faith. And before we read today's passage, as we read along, I want you guys to take a little, be a little interactive. And so uh, we're going to be grappling with the themes of fear and of faith. And so when we come across in the passage the word fear or anything associated with fear, for example, afraid or trembling, you can circle that word. Circle fear, circle trembling, circle afraid. And then as we read the context, try to decide where, what is the source of that fear? Why, why is this person showing fear? And try to underline that part. So circle the words fear or afraid or trembling and then try to underline what the source is. And then when we see the word faith, put a star near that so you can see the word faith. All right, let's jump in. To our first point, Jesus is Lord over disaster. And so we'll be looking at the first parts of today's scripture, Luke 8, verses 22 to 25. Please follow along in your own copy of God's word or in the bulletin. One day he got into the boat, into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. We see here from this first section that Jesus has, again, the authority and power over disaster, over a world in chaos. Jesus is Lord over all creation, and he is still Lord even in a disordered creation. This trip across this lake, the Sea of Galilee, happens after Jesus has been walking around through the northern part of Israel. He's been going through cities and villages, teaching and preaching and proclaiming the good news and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus states his plan to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. 
and they obeyed him. His plan was to take them to the other side to continue the ministry. And we'll see, even in their obedience to Jesus, that they still met trials. They still met a storm along the way. Shortly after they set out, Jesus was resting and sleeping peacefully. This displays his humanity, that Jesus is human, but also the peace that he has to rest even when the stormy conditions arrive. And so the storm came suddenly and without warning. And so if you look at the geography of this, the Sea of Galilee is actually 200 meters or 700 feet below sea level. So we have sea level and you have the Sea of Galilee. And so this is a fun fact for, for all you geography buffs. This is the lowest freshwater lake in the whole world on planet Earth. And so around this lake, there's all these hills. Uh, and so this, these features here um, makes way for, for these sudden windstorms to occur. And so any, any gust of wind that comes down from the hill, travels down, pushes onto the lake, and is able to stir up and create a big sea storm, or a lake storm on there. And so the features of this, of this lake make these common. And so these fishermen, again, remember the disciples included experienced fishermen, and so specifically that lake. And so they're used to seeing this kind of storm. Remember uh, earlier in Luke, they say, we've been fishing all night, these storms that arise as the temperatures change at night. And so they met these storms before, but even they were still terrified in this instance. So even though they've seen these storms, this one must have been of extraordinary violence. And Luke takes note here on how quickly the boat was collecting with water. And so the disciples came to Jesus to wake him up. We are perishing, are their words. They show their belief that they would die, that the mission of Jesus would end right there in that lake. They use the pronoun we to include Jesus. Jesus, we, you, us, we're, we're perishing. And so Jesus wakes up, and the first thing that he does here is that he rebukes the wind and the waves. Verse 24, rebuke the wind and the waves, the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Instantly, there is a calm. Have you ever bathed a small child or a dog in a bathtub? And so if you're trying to bathe them and they're splashing and, and swirling and the, and the water splashing all around and you want to put the shampoo in and you say, stop, and maybe the baby or the dog will stop. Do the waves stop immediately? No, they continue to swirl around, right? Because the child has pushed them or the dog has pushed them. They keep swirling around. And so imagine on a greater scale, the wind and the waves here. And the moment that Jesus says, stop, it stops. There was no more splashing. There were no more waves. There was a calm. Luke's use of the word tranquility here, the Greek word galene, is a stillness. And so Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He can bring peace and calm to the storm, over the storm in the lake, over the storms in our lives. But it's not only about our life storms, difficulties that we face on this side of eternity, but it's about the biggest storm that we have that he is bringing peace to our battle against God by paying the price for our sins. Notice again that Jesus first does this, that he rebukes the wind and the waves to show his power, but to also calm the disciples before disciplining them. They believe they were in danger of the wind and the waves. They believe they were in danger of the storm, but really they should have been fearing the one in the boat that the waves and the winds submit to. You ever yell at the weather? Stop raining. Why is it raining today? Ah, does it do any good? 
But Jesus, with just his words, is able to stop the storm. And then he turns his attention from the disaster, from the storm, to his disciples to rebuke them. And he sees the entire situation, and let's look closely now at Jesus' reaction in verse 25. He asks the disciples a simple question, where is your faith? There's a faith word, we'll put a little star right here. And so you can see the storm did not disturb Jesus, the waves did not disturb Jesus, he was sleeping peacefully, but the unbelief of his disciples, that needed to be addressed. He needed to remind them who was in control of the storm, who always had the authority over any of the disasters that they would face. And so here we can see the reactions of his disciples to their master after observing the power and the authority of Jesus. The end of the, the passage of this part shows the reaction of the disciples, and so we see our first appearance of the word fear. So you can underline that here. So we see the word afraid in, in verse 25. And so what, or sorry, you can circle it, but what were they afraid of? What was the source? They were fearful because this, they had just observed a man, their teacher, calm the storm. He had control over the storm. We read it now, we understand Jesus is Lord over all. We understand Jesus, of course, he can stop the wind. Of course, he can calm the storm. He was there. He was creating these things in the beginning. But this is the first recorded miracle in Luke that shows that Jesus has power over nature. So up to this point, the disciples haven't seen this. And perhaps they, they believed Jesus was powerful. He was powerful enough to heal. He was powerful enough to, 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 to teach and, and raise people from the dead. But he may not have been the Lord over everything. There are many gods at this time that they're God of this, the God, the Greek gods of, of water, of ocean, of, of heavens. And so maybe they thought Jesus had some power, but maybe not overall. And so they also saw the humanity of Jesus when he was rest and tired, and how that conflicted with their ideas that this man is sleeping and tired, but that he is controlling these waves. They see the lordship now of Jesus in his authority over disasters. So now that the seas were at peace, you can look at the hearts of the disciples, that there is now the turmoil and the storm had shifted from out on the lake to now into their own hearts. And they were questioning themselves, who is Jesus? The waves and the winds obey him. This question is a good one because if anyone knows the Old Testament or the Jewish theology, they would know that Yahweh was the one, the Lord over the wind and the seas. In our reading today, uh, Psalm 107, we see that God is the one that can make the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And so the disciples were slowly piecing it together at this point that Jesus, the healer, the master teacher, the one that's able to forgive sins, now he is also Yahweh. He's also the Lord that can rule over creation. And so from this first miracle, I want us to, to look at our own lives and ask the Spirit for clarity as we examine ourselves. So I want to point out just three questions or three points uh, from this session. The first one, storms hit suddenly and without warning. Storms hit suddenly and without warning. And so think about the storms in your life. How often are the storms in your life predicted? You always think, I'm going to make an emergency bag. I'm going to get this ready and this ready, but we never do. 
And so when the storm comes, you're usually unprepared. There's a health emergency of a parent or a sibling or a friend or a son or daughter gets sick. How quickly do they appear? How quickly do these storms appear? And so when they do hit, how do you react? It's hard to say, right? When things are at peace, it's hard to say, but you can spend your days of peace now preparing. You can spend your days of peace now deepening your relationship with Jesus, understanding more that he is uh, sovereign over these storms, so that when the nights of the storm do come, your faith is in the sure and steady anchor of Jesus. The second point here, storms hit the believers. The storm hits the believers. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, we are not exempt from storms and suffering. Just because you follow God does not mean that you are free from any kind of suffering in this world. Actually, many times we see those that are faithfully obeying, faithfully serving Jesus, will encounter storms. And so we have this idea that sometimes if you're sinful, like Jonah, if you're running away from the Lord, that's when you meet the storms. We need to reframe our thinking. But not only that, we need to reshape our prayers for a deeper faith and love for Jesus when the storms hit. Untested faith is weak. It's easier to show our faith when we are untested and life is easy to give God praise. But when the storms in life hit, we should, remind, we should be reminded to know who is in charge, who is the one that we can place all of our faith and trust in. And that leads us to the third point from this session. Focus on Jesus during the storms. Focus on Jesus during the storms. Again, be comforted in this story that Jesus is the one that knew that the storms were coming. He's the one that said, let's go across the lake. He knew the storms were coming. And he was also in the boat with them. So the disciples had a fear of perishing that was greater than the presence of Jesus right there in front of them. They wake him up because they're fearful. And so how often are, are we like that? When something comes, we focus on the storm. We focus on the obstacles, on the challenges that we're facing. But we don't look at the big picture. We don't look at the one who is sovereign over all of these obstacles, all of these storms that hit. Do we focus on the storms? Do we focus on ourselves? Do we ask, why me, Lord? Why me? It's about me. We're being obedient, God. Why do we have to have these storms? We see storms may not be used by God to discipline us, but actually he may use storms to disciple us. Let's move on to the next point, that Jesus has authority and power over demons, and specifically the devil. He has power over evil. He has power over Satan. Satan. So let, listen uh, as I read from verses 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, 
do not torment me. For he had commanded this unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the, bound, the bonds and be driven by a demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter, the, enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So just as Jesus had told his disciples, we are going to safely sail across this lake and reach the eastern side. So this region, the Gerasenes, this is a region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so this region is mainly populated by Gentile uh, citizens. And so these people were more culturally Greek uh, than Jewish. And so this is evidence here. We see a herd of pigs on the hillside. They're being farmed. There's herdsmen. And so remember, in Jewish law, pigs were unclean. They're forbidden to be eaten and touched. So in this area, you can see that there's a lot of other cultures mixed, a lot of other gods or superstitions uh, from Greek culture. And so the news of Jesus may not have spread as widely here. And so Jesus and his disciples get off the boat, and the first thing they do is they meet this man that for a long time has been harassed and possessed by evil to the point where he's been dehumanized. Humans are made in the image of God. Demons attack man to mar that image. They want to mar that connection to God. They want to make them feel less than human. And so we see verse 27, the typical hallmarks of a demon possession, that he is an outcast, that he is not in his right mind, driven out to the desert, um, living amongst the, the decaying, the dead, in the tombs. He doesn't have a home, he's not clothed, he is naked and, and, and not right in the mind. So he's been chased out, and he's even been chained at times by the villagers, mainly for their own protection, to keep them, keep them kind of there, but just under control. Uh, at the same time, this is the, the dehumanization or the humility uh, the humiliation of this man. And so, even at times, we see that, that this possessed man has superhuman strength, that he's able to break through these chains as well. And so, in this exchange that Jesus has with this demon-possessed man, a lot happens that the onlookers, that the Greeks, that the, the, the shepherds, the herdsmen, would, uh, the herdsmen would have noticed because of the cultural context here. And so, Luke is sure to note uh, some of that in the superstitions involved. So verse Jesus commands unclean spirit come out of the man and the reply is what have you to do with me Jesus son of the most high God I beg you do not torment me 
And so we know that there is a lot of significance in knowing someone's name. We see that numerous times in the Bible where the Lord calls a person to follow him. And then as their lives change and as their meaning for their life, their purpose changes, at the same time, their names change as well to have a new meaning to reflect that change. So we see Abraham, we see Peter, we see Paul, that names have a significance. However, in this region, that significance of names has been twisted to a superstition. There were occult beliefs there that using a precise name of a person would give them control over that person or authority over that person. And so we see in verse 28 that the demon-possessed man, they correctly identify who Jesus is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a healer. They call him the son of the Most High God. By addressing Jesus with his full title, the demons are trying to get the upper hand. They know that if we can say his name, then it will be powerful. It's powerful in the culture at the time. And so the ancient superstition, again, that they had us, they could try to get a spiritual power over him if they said his exact name. So by saying Jesus, Son of the Most High God, the demons demonstrated their hopes that this superstition, they were just hoping the superstition would hold true. They wanted to strike fear into the heart of Jesus. They wanted to strike fear to the disciples and the onlookers by saying his name. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. And so with the herdsmen still watching and the confrontation playing out, we see now in verse 30 how Jesus turns the tables on the demons. He doesn't flinch. He says, what is your name? He asks for his name. And here, their response, they don't fully answer the question. They rather give a, another cultural reference to try to puff themselves up in hopes of making Jesus and the others fearful. They say legion. The reference legion here is a, a multitude because many demons has entered, have entered this man. But it's also a reference to the Roman legion, Rome being the Roman power, which is the, the largest military deployment, about 5,000, 6,000 soldiers. So they're, they're using this uh, name as a reference to the military. And so they use these words of aggression to show that they were soldiers, to show that they were ready for a fight. Soldiers of the devil. That they were a larger number. That they outnumbered Jesus. And they did present Jesus with a specific name. Again, sticking with their superstition that they, he can't know our name or else he'll have power over us. But that doesn't hold true. Jesus still has spiritual power over them. He does not back down and the demons beg twice here. I beg you do not torment me and later again beg not to be thrown into the abyss. And so this is the bottomless pit for the devil and his demons uh, referenced in Revelation 9. So the demons know that Jesus has authority over them. And despite the fact uh, that the demons have been tormenting this man, ironically now they're asking Jesus, don't torment us. At this time, uh, in the, in the, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the time of demonstrating his complete authority over evil and demons had not yet come. Colossians 2.15 specifically tells us that Jesus will disarm these demons and triumph over them with his work on the cross. So ultimately, Jesus at this time does allow the demons to leave the man and to enter the swine on the hill. And they immediately show their intent for destruction. And they rush into the pigs, and the pigs all rush into the lake, destroying them. And ultimately, when Jesus returns to defeat Satan, 
it's not only the abyss, but we read in Revelation 20.10 that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see these strong connections of tormenting forever. And we see this miracle take place, that this man has become well, that he is no longer possessed by these demons. And we need to take note of the reactions again here. Verses 35 and 37, we see the words afraid and fear again. You circle them. And what caused them? What caused this fear of being afraid? They see that this man has been completely restored. Almost instantly we see a person that's been possessed and tortured and tormented for many, many years. Now, completely restored, completely humanized, able to sit and listen at the feet of Jesus, to listen to his teaching, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ. This man's encounter with Jesus has brought him peace. Meanwhile, the crowd encountering this was seized with fear. The seizure that was once held by the multitude of demons that possessed this man was now the seizure of fear that were in the hearts of these people, in fear of Jesus. They knew about this possessed man for a long time. They, they knew that he had superhuman strength, that he was being tortured and tormented in the wild. And now they saw someone that was even more powerful than these demons that possessed the man. They feared Jesus, but their hearts were not of worship. And so they asked Jesus, depart. They had grown numb. They had grown used to this demon-possessed man, this outcast. They allowed him to reside nearby uh, in the countryside. They allowed him to be there, to be present, but they did not want Jesus to be there. The Gentiles at this time, they were not ready for Jesus. They were fearful of someone who had the authority over demons. And so when people are more afraid of what Jesus will do in their lives, rather than what Satan was already currently doing at that moment, then they're unable to accept Jesus and they push him away. But at the same time, we have to look at the response of the man in verse 38 and 39. He begs Jesus, he begs to follow him, and Jesus tells him to go and proclaim how much God has done for you. And so in hearing this, and then he makes a connection. Who is this Jesus? He realizes that Jesus is God, that he has authority and power over all the other gods, with a lowercase g, all the other demons. And so it's stated here that the man went around the city proclaiming how much Jesus has done for him. Jesus says, proclaim how much God has done for you, and he proclaims how much Jesus has done for him. The man has correctly answered the question of who is Jesus. Jesus is God. And in this miracle, he sees that Jesus is Lord over demons and over evil. This man understood, and he was sent by Jesus to tell the good news to others uh, in the region. This incident shows us that God is already bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He's bringing this not only to the Jews. He was urged to do this because this region was still not one that would immediately hinder or impact uh, the ministry of Jesus. And so when Jesus returns back to Galilee, he keeps a lower profile there until the Lord's timing had come for the cross. So as we close up this section, I want to use an acronym for us to remember how to apply this in our church. And so the word ACT, A-C-T, comes to mind, as in we need to act against evil. 
<clears throat> the A here is for the armor, as in the armor of God. And so looking at this, I really think a lot more about Paul's letter to the Ephesians in, in, in chapter 6. In verse 12, he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so here you can see that Jesus does not blame the man. He rebukes the evil. It's not against the man's flesh. It's against evil that he is against here. And so Paul is writing in Ephesians about the whole armor of God and the importance of equipping ourselves for battle. That the devil has come referring to military strength, referring to a, a, a battle, and that we must likewise use this um, use this analogy, use this thought in our faith. If you're familiar with the passage or if you need a, a refresher, I suggest reading Ephesians 6. There is a spiritual battle. There is spiritual warfare. It's not just a battle against humans, against flesh and blood. We can't assume that things just happen coincidentally. When we are confronting evil, do we stand ready in truth? Do we have righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word? And after listing all of these in our armor of God, Paul also says, don't forget the last most important weapon, praying. And not just praying, but praying at all times in the spirit. The C here, there's actually two C words, is call it out and confess in our ACT. Call it out and confess. And so we see the importance, again, of naming. We see the importance here of, of calling out sin. As members of a church, as people that are covenant together, it's our duty to be on guard for each other, to name out the ugly sins, to call them out in hopes of reconciliation, not to make the person feel bad, not to put ourselves at a higher place, but we want to see restoration in Christ. Help call it out with each other, confess, hold each other accountable. Is there pride? Call it out. Anger? Is there lust or bitterness? Gossip? Greed? Each week we have a prayer of confession where we bring corporately as a church our sins before the Lord. However, in your own discipleship, in your own meeting times with, with other brothers and sisters and Bible studies, make this a regular event as well to be confessing together to help each other call out the sins and reconcile with the Lord to come together in prayer and confession and knowing that Jesus saves. And that leads us right to the last one, T, trust in Jesus. T, trust in Jesus. Evil is ruled over by Jesus. He has the ultimate authority. However, at this time, the devil is permitted by the Lord to have his influence. Ephesians 2.2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so in this world, we see the influence of the enemy. We see it everywhere. And sometimes we become numb. We let it to reside close by. We think it can be kind of controlled or contained in one area. If you have any superstitions, any horoscope readings, if you believe in, in fortune telling, getting your palm read, uh, spiritism, uh, magic, all of these are different doors of deception that will expose us to the demonic spirits. Do you have a superstitious parent? Do they say, don't put your appointment on the 14th? Yeah, so don't do that. Put it on the 18th. Put it on the 8th. That's much better. That's superstition. Do we do things a certain way? 
Do we make sure we put our right shoe on first and the left shoe? If I do it the other way, I'm going to have a bad day. Do we believe in luck? I carry uh, a rabbit's foot or, or a, a horseshoe? Maybe not, but I do something to have good luck. How we're sometimes more willing to accept the devil, we're willing to accept this evil in our lives rather than the restoring power of Jesus. Do we hang on to these scraps of sin, of these superstitions, of these beliefs? There's no room for that. Even a small bit of superstition shows our massive deficiency in trusting the authority of Christ. So in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, author C.S. Lewis writes this, that the devil uh, is talking to the other demons, and they're talking about, about tricking man. And so there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and, unha and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we can either care too little or too much. Friends, can we act together as a church against evil? ACT. Can we do that knowing that only Jesus is able to bring complete restoration? So let's continue on. We'll be working through to the next point now. The third point, Jesus is Lord over disease. Jesus has been asked by the crowds again to leave. He returns back to the West Shore, and he's greeted there much more positively by the crowds that formed there. And so this leads to the last two miracles um, of healing, and they're linked together. And, and they are the only intertwined miracles that's consistently shown in the Gospels. Uh, deliverance from disease and deliverance from death. To show that these two individuals, although they have very different backgrounds, they have very different life circumstances, socioeconomic status, but they both still have one thing in common, that they both exhibit great faith in Jesus. So let's dig in, verses 40 to 47. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So right now we'll focus again on this woman who has been suffering from bleeding for the last 12 years. Jesus returns back to the crowd. They are welcoming him back. They are gathered to listen. These are the crowds that we see before that, that listened to the parable of the sower. These are the crowds that gathered together that didn't even allow his brothers, uh, his mothers and brothers to reach Jesus. And so how crowded is this? They're pressing in. Imagine line two at five o'clock in the afternoon on the subway where, where you barely can, can even stand. Or imagine uh, waiting in Disney in line for Tron 
where all these people are in line for an even better show, of even better teaching of Jesus. And so the Greek here for crowding is the same one used when we talk about pressing and squeezing a grape. That's how crowded it is. Grapes are being squeezed. And so in verses 43, 44, we see again this woman who was ceremonially and socially unclean. She was socially isolated again, and she was weak from losing blood for all these years. And so bleeding makes her unclean in the law. She should not have been there in that social gathering because she was unclean. And Luke also notes that she has spent all of her money on these expensive doctor bills, but having no results. And so upon seeing that Jesus was passing through, she didn't even dare to approach him. She didn't even dare to go and talk to him. Rather, she knew that all she needed to do was just touch his clothes and that she'd be healed. The woman wanted to secretly do this because she was ashamed of her condition. She didn't want others to know. She didn't want others to know that she was there. Her faith is misplaced in that she believed that she only needed to touch his clothes. But this woman did, did have faith in Jesus that he was holy and that he was powerful. The word fringe here, um, in Greek, this is the term for the tassels. And so these are worn by uh, the male Jews on the corners of their garments. And so usually they, they show status or they show uh, this person is a teacher, this, this man is respected. And so the word fringe is interesting because of her conditions, she was on the fringe of society. But then she knew that she only needed to touch the fringe of Jesus to be healed. And so she wasn't on the fringe because of her faith. Jesus called her daughter. This is not a fringe term. This is an intimate and close and inclusive term. In all this world, I only get to call two people daughter. Of course, if the Lord blesses me with more, I'll be thankful. But this is a close term. I'm not going to just call that to anyone. And so even though her knowledge was imperfect, even though she was believing that the powers even in Jesus' Closed, she still believed that Jesus could heal her. Her faith was put in the right source and that Jesus honored that faith. And we see again immediately she is healed. Something she suffered over 12 years is instantly healed. Luke notes that this healing has tormented the woman uh, for many years. And immediately when this happens, Jesus doesn't speak right away about the woman or he doesn't acknowledge the healing right away. But he first confirms that there is a miracle and he first asks who touched me he doesn't confirm that the healing has taken place until the woman has stepped out of the crowd and he is face to face with her the question who touched me is not understood by the disciples it's a very crowded street everyone is touching everyone they question people away they said okay who touched jesus and it's stated here that everyone said no no I, not me i didn't do it and so they wait and the woman finally responds to the call. Jesus wants her to be bold and to stand up in her faith. She doesn't answer immediately. You can see here that she is fearful. And so he stopped to find her. She realized that she is no longer hidden. That was what caused her fear, that she was no longer hidden. Though she had faith in Jesus, she couldn't just kind of receive the healing and go away. And so you can see here she trembled. This is the fear word that we're looking at in this in this section you can circle that she is fearful now because she was no longer hidden jesus knows her he knew that power has come out from him when she touched his clothes 
And so she could be fearful that she was unsure of Jesus' reaction. Was he going to be angry at her? Did she make him unclean now because she was unclean? But Jesus wants to make this a point to show others in that crowd the faith that she had. He wants others to know that she was healed, but that also she had the faith that he could heal more than just her physical sickness. He wanted to confirm that it was her faith and not his clothes that saved her. And he wants the crowd and her to know that she has been completely healed. It's not just a physical healing when he says that you are well, that she is a child of his now. Her complete faith of Jesus, because of that, he calls her daughter. So this should be very familiar. This is the same confirmation that the sinful woman received earlier in Luke 7.50. It's repeated here again. Jesus says these same words. Your faith has saved you, has made you well. Go in peace. It's not just physical healing, but they have been forgiven of their sins. They have been restored and able to go in the peace of the Lord. And they are forgiven because of their faith. Jesus has authority over this uh, over disease. Now let's move on to the last point. Throughout all this incident, all of these events, Jairus is patiently waiting. Jairus, the father who traveled far to find Jesus to make his plea, and this leads us to the final point. Jesus is Lord. He has authority over death. From verse 40, 42 earlier, we see that Jairus had influence. He was respected. He was a ruler of a synagogue. He was in charge. But when he came, his first action was to fall at the feet of Jesus. He was showing Jesus, and he's showing the crowds that he knew the order of things. He knew that even though he was respected, he was a leader, he exhibited this humility before Jesus. He knew who was the ruler above himself that he submitted to Jesus. God's timing is perfect. Though Jairus was a was in a rush. He had one daughter, one child. She was dying, but Jesus still stopped to heal the woman. God's timing is perfect. And so here we can see, um, sorry, in, a, in fact, during the third miracle and healing, a messenger was already sent from Jairus' home to come and tell, uh, to relay the news that his daughter had already died. So let's read uh, the end of our passage today, verses 49 and 56. Uh, you can follow along. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he, said, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her, uh, given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So again, in verse 49 50, immediately after receiving the message, Jesus was quick first to give comfort to Jairus and to address to him. The messenger came, uh, from the home, and he, and he still only refers to Jesus as teacher here. He only calls Jesus a teacher. They believe that he was a great teacher. Perhaps they thought he had some healing power, so this is way too much for Jesus to handle. He does not have authority over death. It's too late. 
don't bother him anymore. Well, upon hearing news of this, Jesus quickly gives Jairus two commands. Do not be afraid, let's circle that, and only believe. It's implied here that Jairus was in fear. He was in fear of loss of his daughter, of his only daughter. At that time in Jewish culture, reaching 12 was actually entering into adulthood um, for, for a girl. And so at this point, she was leaving her childhood behind and reaching an age where it was uh, acceptable for her to get married. So Jarvis was looking forward to the future of his daughter. Instead, he's mourning her death. But Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. And he immediately addresses this and says, only believe. Jesus gives comfort to Jairus and tells him to believe and place his faith that she will be well. Dr. Daryl Bach, a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, he writes this, We often struggle to understand God's timing. In fact, much of faith is related to accepting God's timing for events. And so this group of Jesus finally reached his house. It's clear here that Luke makes a special note that Peter, John, and James as well as only the mother and father are allowed to enter. Jesus wants his key disciples to witness this. These three are the same that are witnessing uh, here Jesus' authority over death. But they were also invited to witness earlier the transfiguration, uh, as well as the three of them are invited to pray together in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. So he's allowing them to be in on this, to see his authority, to see him glorified, to see him before he is crucified. In those days, it was customary to hire professional mourners to have people be sad, to have an atmosphere of grief so it was loud and painful uh, at death. And so these professional mourners, you can see they could only grieve superficially. They weren't really there to mourn with them. When Jesus states, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping, they quickly turn from weeping to scornful laughter. So Jesus again addresses child Obviously, this girl is a child being 12, but he's addressing her as a child, just like how he recently addressed the bleeding woman as daughter. And so Jairus' daughter and this woman have their miracles linked together. You can see the time frames here presented by Luke that as Jairus' family was celebrating the birth of this girl 12 years ago, ago, this was the same time that the woman who was bleeding had her troubles began, that her disease had been... been, um, She'd been afflicted by this disease for 12 years. And so now, on that same day, that they were both healed physically and spiritually as well. Upon hearing Jesus' words, the girl's spirit is healed, and she gets up again at once. We can see that she's completely stored, even physically, and that Jesus sends for some food for her to eat. And so Jesus then tells them to keep this incident quiet, and he indicates that he does not... uh, want this to unnecessarily be public. Again, um, this healing was back in Galilee, so he was continuing his ministry, and the time had not come yet for him and the cross. And so looking at these last two miracles, I do want to remind you that we need to trust in the Lord's timing. Jairus could have given up. He could have told Jesus, okay, you heard what the messenger said. Thanks. Oftentimes in our short-sightedness, we focus only on the problem and the issues. And we just want Jesus to save that issue temporarily. Jesus isn't saving just temporarily. He's not just saving a sickness now. We're not just helping us balance our bank accounts now. We're just getting over a tough time with our family or with a friend now. 
His saving is eternal. In forgiving sins and making us well, he's making us spiritually healthy before the Lord. Being saved is having our sins forgiven and not being separated from God and heaven forever. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to notice one more aspect of the power of Jesus. He never used his powers here in these miracles to avoid these storms, to avoid these trials. Jesus does not go on the boat with the disciples and then he keeps the storm from overtaking the boat. Jesus could have done that, but he does not. Jesus does not prevent the man from becoming demon-possessed. Jesus does not prevent the woman with the bleeding disease to never, ever have gotten sick in the first place. Jesus does not reach Jairus' daughter before she dies. Jesus does not cause us to avoid life's trials, but he delivers us through these trials. He calms the storms. He casts out the demons. He heals the woman. And so Jesus raises the dead. He's risen. He's given us hope, and he's given us life. Jesus is trustworthy and deserving of our faith. So let's conclude. Let's look again at where we have circled the words associated with fear, trembling, afraid. There were a lot of opportunities in today's passage for fear. But we see it should be about four times. And the first three times, what was the source of the fear? Were they fearful of the storm? Were they fearful of the demons? Was it fearful from, from the sickness, from disease? No, we see that these sources of these fears come after they witness and they know the lordship of Jesus. They come after the danger has already passed and it comes as a reaction to Jesus, the one that has power over disasters, over demons, over disease. And the fourth account is Jesus himself that says, do not be afraid. Why? In the first three miracles, Jesus showed that he had the power over things that were unable to control or explain. But in the fourth miracle, death had already come to this girl. Death has already reached our hearts in sin. And so as far as Jairus' family knew at this point, this was as final as you can get. But Jesus brings comfort in telling him, do not be afraid. And he demonstrates that he himself is Lord over death, that he can determine life and death. In his mercy, he gives life. His lordship over death was one that gives life. He came to give life. It says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is our Lord Jesus. He is God and he is good. And then we look where we have starred the word faith twice. Once, this was a rebuke to the disciples. They didn't follow Jesus. They followed their own fears instead. And so the second time was when the bleeding woman trembled before the Lord. And Jesus acknowledges that it was her faith that made her well. If we have a fear of Jesus, since he is more powerful than any of our fears, but that we also know he is good, then we know that he is worthy of our trust, that we can put our faith in him. Where is our faith? It is in him. We see that in Luke 7. We see before that after Jesus raised the widow's son back from the dead, that the crowds and those were initially seized by fear. But then after that, the response was to glorify God. They say, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This fear, they feared Jesus, but then they understand who is Jesus, and that prompted them to become 
to become faithful to him. So who is Jesus? He's not a, just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet, a good person. He is Lord over all, over disasters, over demons, over disease, and over death. So again, as we close, I ask again, what do you fear? What are you fearful of? On June 1st, 2015, our firstborn Zoe was admitted uh, to Fudan Children's Hospital in Minghan. And so some of you at that time were part of this church and you know this, but many of you do not know this. And so she was admitted to the hospital. This was after a week where she had a lot of appointments and she was receiving different needles and different treatments and antibiotics. And she continued to be fatigued. Her body was aching. She had a fever. She was vomiting. She had pink eye. She was not getting any better. And so after this week of unsuccessful treatments, our doctor finally diagnosed her with Kawasaki disease. So like many of you, I had no idea what that is. And so I quickly searched for it online, which preyed on my fears. I found that it's a disease related to the circulatory system in the heart, and that it could be quite fatal in children if it wasn't quickly treated within 10 days. And so our doctor quickly helped us make some accommodations to, to go to Fudan Children's Hospital. There was a very small room available. It was only room for a, a bed and, and maybe a seat that pulled out in there. Um, and so we, uh, she advised that we go there that evening so that we could get help and get treatment right away. And so our family, of course, quickly agreed and we got onto a, an ambulance. That's the first time, first and only so far that we were riding in a, an ambulance, an emergency vehicle. And so we arrived at the hospital, we waited for a little while before the doctor could see us and diagnose. And so we we're finally able to enter that room and they said, well, she doesn't exhibit enough of the symptoms yet, so we can't begin treatment. And at that point, I'm already thinking, oh, it's already been seven, eight days maybe. It's, it's, there's a very short window of time that I wanted it to be to my timing. And so we were able to enter the small room and, and they had no soap, they had nothing really there. Uh, but Zoe was just sleeping on the bed uh, and there was a little small sofa that you could pull out to sleep uh, and a footstool but I wouldn't need it that night I wouldn't be able to sleep at all and so I just cried and prayed by Zoe's bed that night as I just watched her as she struggled to sleep and she had just labored breathing and so that night uh, definitely was the most fearful night fearful that I've ever been in my life I was fearful of death I was fearful of, of losing my daughter uh, even though I knew the one that conquered death, I knew Jesus that, that he is the one that has conquered death on our behalf, I was still fearful. This storm was still causing fear. And I, I wish that, that she could just recover, that God would just heal her. Uh, I even put my trust in the treatment, saying let's, let's do this quickly. And so that night I had, to, I had to wrestle with the fact that the Lord was sovereign over my life and over Zoe's life as well. That if in his perfect will and in his good purpose, she was the past that night and not survived that I was I was still powerless to do anything about it and that I wouldn't be able to love her more perfectly than our Lord Jesus Christ does and so the Lord was merciful to allow her to recover and heal um, but we know that that healing was only her physical body that was healed and so we continue to pray to the Lord to save her spiritually to save her to allow our children to know his grace and that they can be made well completely in him Fear is our first response when we're faced with terrors and uncertainty. But the truth is we know the one that is Lord over creation, over the spiritual. 
over even death itself, and he is the one to be feared. And upon seeing that Jesus is trustworthy and that Jesus is good, our only response can be to put all of our faith in him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you, or we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, to this world to save, to reconcile, to restore. Through him, we can be made well again and be at peace with you. And that in him, we can place all of our hope and all of our faith. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.